what you don't realize is it's only safe for me to do that in public. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. It's Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we're going to get right into it, and we're going to be discussing white supremacy and evangelical Christianity. And for our segment, we're going to bring back one that we did recently called I Would But, which will, which always leads to a lot of fun uh, and exposes who is the asshole group, which... Spoiler, last time it was me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, to guide us through this conversation, Bonnie, our resident professor, we're just going to call you that now. I'm just saying that, uh, is going to guide us through some questions that she's developed to kind of get the conversation rolling. And then we will see where we end up. So, Bonnie, take it away. Um. Yeah, boy, you know, I, I think that we're at a time where people are becoming more and more aware of white supremacy in general, right? White privilege, and it's long overdue. And so it's important for us, I think, to think about our own religious heritage and how that may have contributed, not only contributed, but probably was a key factor in supporting white supremacy in this country. And we talked about white supremacy and evangelical Christianity. However, evangelical Christianity is, is a very big, big umbrella. So we should almost say evangelical Christianities, probably. And we're talking specifically about white evangelical Christianity and the role that it's played in American life. So, yeah, let's start with the question. Like, as you look back and reflect on your time either growing up or somehow becoming connected with evangelical Christianity and your in the contexts that you lived in, where did you see white supremacy or anti-blackness show up? How did it show up? What did it look like? As we get into the conversation, Bonnie, I, I know that we really want to focus in on um, evangelicalism, but I think the truth is, is Christianity has a long history of racism. <laughs> I mean, Martin Luther was like a major anti-Semite, and he was like the founder of the Reformation. Although we're going to focus on uh, evangelicalism, I really just want to lift up the fact that Christianity itself, uh, for a very long time, has had an has had an issue with racism. European Christianity, yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, thank you, Casey. I went through and looked at all of my old Awana books. Uh, Awana is. Like the Baptist Boy Scouts, kind of, where they make you memorize stuff. And like I combed through what they were, what I was taught in first grade all the way through uh, when I was a senior in high school. And there was all sorts of like conversations about all the ways that I was sinful as a human being, even in first grade. Like, you know, you're a sinner for all these reasons. And, and never once was racism ever talked about. And even in the books themselves, the way they're presented, um, the like very, at least in one book that I was looking at for when I was in third grade, all of the kids are white in every single picture. We've used uh, the concept of like 
Native American identity as like a kind of kitschy theme through the whole thing, but really centered whiteness, even like aesthetically inside of the book and talked about patriotism. And here's all the founding fathers are all white. And then all these kids supporting the the patriotic people. And, and I mean, we learned how to recycle and use our arms for like lane changes and stuff. And, and then talked about how we're com- completely and irredeemably corrupt. And even if we try to be good, God won't accept us, but never like once ever talked about racism. So if I brought that up now, I can almost hear people from my past saying, well, that's not a conversation you want to have with a kid, you know, about racism. And then I would say the conversations we were having (laughs) were absolutely inappropriate. That like, you know, I'm falling off this irredeemable cliff and God doesn't, you know, love me unless I say the right things and then I can make it into God's love. So um, I think even beginning to question where white supremacy showed up in my past, there's so many places, but like that's one little avenue into it. I do know that my church was like mostly white and I even heard, man, I, I don't know how much I want to say, but I guess it's my, I guess it's my past and I can speak about it, but I don't want to talk about other people's experiences. We did have you know, some people of color in our church and nobody listened to their experiences from my perspective as a kid. I heard a lot of adults talking about pulling the race card and that kind of stuff in the midst of, and when I look back and I think about my church growing up, it's like, it is completely made for white people. And in our missions trips and stuff, we were exporting whiteness as much as anything else going down to Mexico and saying all of these, you know, all these people in Mexico are not Christians because they're not Christians like us. And then literally trying to recreate what our culture was, um, was, was part and parcel with spreading the good news. So, I mean, like I could talk for hours. I think a lot of us could, but there's just a lot and it's a little daunting to think about. I think one of the things that Alan is saying that is really important for us to elevate is the idea that he can't speak exactly to when he first experienced it because he was so enculturated in it, right? Yes. I mean, that's what that's what the the demon of whiteness does. <laughs> it's it's like American, right? Uh, that's it's the same concept. You go to Mexico to make them Christians like you. You hear white folks say, we want everyone to be American, which is uh, a blanket statement for stay where you are because we just want to elevate whiteness. It's deeply rooted, and it doesn't make itself clearly known in a lot of ways until you look back and say, why Why was this the only conversations we were having? I mean, we spent more time as young adults talking about not masturbating than we did talking about confronting racism or how to navigate that. And there are instances from my past where it was made known, not just an invisible thing, but something that did show up. I mean, in seminary, hearing that the fact that there were other perspectives doing theology from like a non-centered, white-centered thing was held up as an example of like the end times. Like we're in the end times because there's womanist theologies and black theology and this type of theology. And so there was There was a literal, like, from seminary down effort to retain this, like, Eurocentric kind of power hold on on church. And and, and how much can we say is, like, church and how much is society or culture? It's all, like, intermingled for me. I I know that my dad was uh, integrated as a kid. 
he went, they went through integration and he was, you know, bust across the city to go to a different elementary school. And that affected my family in like a negative way. And that was a story that, that I've like learned later in my life. And how, how much is that like, because Christianity is such a part of culture, it's almost like, where is, where is the, the, the blending stop? Is it, is it just the church or is it society? So there's questions I have around that. For me, it was the church that I was formed in lived in an area that I most people wouldn't describe it this way, but that's heavily segregated. My wife and I lived in the same area and we went to different high schools and I went to the high school that was primarily uh, Latinx and she went to the high school that was primarily white and that was reflective of the communities that we were in. And the church that I grew up in started out in a neighborhood that was primarily full of people of color and... As they got enough money, as they got enough pledges for their building, they promptly built into the wider area of the city. And that was a story that was very common. So it was like separate ourselves from the community, but then go back into the community from a distance to provide charity, food, so that we can tell ourselves that we're doing a good job. And then the first church that I worked in as a youth minister was... The same deal. It was a church that was huge and in the middle of a, of a neighborhood with primarily people of color. And, but if you came on a Sunday morning, you wouldn't know it because that's right. there were a lot of wealthy people in the church that came from different parts of the area that did not live in the area that the church was in for a lot of different reasons. And I didn't, I didn't pick up those things in the middle. I think Casey, what you said is spot on, so entrenched in it that it wasn't even a second thought but then reflecting back on it, even the way, as Alan was mentioning, that we did missions, you know, it was always the people that were less fortunate almost always were people of color. And there was there was this desire to repent and there was this desire to call out institutions for what they were doing wrong. But there was never a desire to be reflective about the institution that they were themselves and how they've been complicit in those things. And growing up in a Pentecostal background, it was striking to me how many times we would do prayer walks. Like there, in one of the churches I worked in, there was even a prayer walk around the local courthouse. It was this large oak tree where I guess back in the day they did lynchings in the, the public square. And this group of prayer warriors is what they called themselves, uh, would do these prayer walks around it to, to repent for this, this evil that the city had done, but never once an idea or a thought of, well, what about our church? What about our tradition? And coming from Pentecostalism, uh, assemblies of God in particular is a huge history of racism. We had a church split over racism, the Azusa, the Azusa street revival that, that sparked Pentecostalism in our country is, the founder of it was essentially cast out of his own revival because of the color of his skin. So these were like deep roots in what we were doing. And a lot of times, the only time it was expressed, at least in my tradition in the Assemblies of God, we had a combined service with the local black church who was part of a denomination that had separated from Assemblies of God. And we did a combined service and that solved the world's problems. And it was, and I say that sarcastically, just <laughs> in case that tone didn't come through, but there was, it's always this, you're looking for an event, but there is no concern to do the real work. And um, 
Yeah. I mean, I guess to answer your question, Bonnie, that's been my experience uh, coming through and seeing evangelicalism connected to, or my version of evangelicalism connected to racism. I think, you know, the arc for me is, is kind of interesting because there are moments where my head and my heart are like a little bit at odds. And it, I, I think about the election of Donald Trump and Right afterwards, there was a skit on Saturday Night Live. Dave Chappelle was the host. The monologue, his monologue was great. It's one, it's one for the, the, the record books. But there's a skit where Dave Chappelle is sitting with these white cast members and they're in a living room watching the election returns. Oh, yeah. And, you know, all these white people are going nuts, right? right. They're like, what the? And Dave's just like, yeah, I mean, this is. This is who we are. <laughs> how do you not know this? Right. <laughs> and Chris Rock then walks in and, you know, it's just this great contrast so i you know with what's happening right now in the united states and and the world there's these awakenings where in my head it's like yes this is really good that people are coming alive but in my gut i'm just like god damn it where the fuck have you been you know it, it's taken how many innocent lives to to realize this so there's this you know tension of being patient and nurturing and encouraging and then also like wow i mean there, there's a lot more to say about the historical arc and there's as far as the the evangelical church in america my observation because i i sort of am a product of it but not really formally grew up seventh day adventism is not doesn't consider itself an evangelical religion but there's like colonialism, which a lot of you have talked about with these mission trips and so on, and, and it's really culturalism. It's it's presenting a culture as superior, and, and Jesus is the Lord of that culture. And then the way I see evangelicalism in America is sort of the inside crowd. It's it's sort of like the, the clan meeting. Yep. It's yes. there. And and they can't really turn away people of color because that would expose them quickly. But Alan, like you recounted, they're there, but they're marginalized even further and and not heard. So it's it's almost like this open structure of of whiteness that asserts itself in every sector and has now, you know, it, it, you look at what happens in D.C. and those meetings with these evangelical leaders who surround Trump. And it's like, well, here we are. If to me it feels a little bit like a page out of Revelation, <laughs> you know, which I've, you know, kind of long dismissed as sci-fi. But it's like, wait a second, sometimes sometimes there's some merit here. Are we are we talking a progressive Christian reboot of Left Behind? Should we should we do it? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I get triggered in that too. The whole like abomination of desolation in the temple, like making a sacrifice of all the innocents in the street to get across the street to the church. That's triggering as hell. I just want to really lift up again what you said, Rajiv, about this is just the new model for the Klansmen meeting. Even, you know, where I'm serving is a very conservative area. And there are some students at a pretty conservative Christian college in my area who are getting ready to come out and speak their truth. And they're deeply afraid of how, what backlash they will receive from the community and the big churches that they attend. It just speaks exactly to what you're saying. You can be here. You can be here in the ways that we allow you to be here, but don't you step out of line. Well, and, and one thing that in my mind I wanted to say, but then didn't say it, 
is in that sweeping up of evangelicalism, a lot of decent, good-hearted people are swept up in it. Totally. And and so they're and and then they get to an age of of sort of accountability, and then they're having to process and discern um, and contend with their whole community that that raised them, and 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 wonder. And that's that can't be a comfortable position to be in. And again, I think, like you're saying, a lot of those good and decent people, because uh, whiteness is not named, right? Because it lives in the in the in the shadows, they have no idea what the, the what they're supporting. You know, it's exactly what I was thinking while you were talking. That's like I can almost hear everybody who's on this other side of the the fence saying, "No, we're not racist. No, systemic racism's not a thing. No, evangelicalism's white. Evangelicalism's not white." It's that it is invisible, and I almost want to speak to them like throughout this whole conversation because it's it's like uh you know you hear things about we didn't hear anything racist in church and I was like well did you hear anything anti racist in church like oh we didn't hear that whiteness was the main thing it's like well did you hear that whiteness wasn't the main thing <laughs> I mean like did you hear like you just said Casey whiteness wasn't named I mean never named even I I can, I can remember being like oh being called white was weird like that that's in my memory, personally, at, in in church, that whiteness was so unnamed that I couldn't even call myself white because it was this invisible, powerful thing. Even though it had legal categories back in the day, and it seeks to not be named. It does. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think the the journey for white people to be able to call themselves white, I, I think that that you can be aware that there's a problem. In the world, you can become aware of racism and still not claim whiteness as one's own identity. And then connected to whiteness is anti blackness. And then, you know, I think about my own tradition growing up all of the Bible characters and all of the book, Bible, children's Bibles, and in my, we call it Sabbath school classroom. They were all white, dressed in, I don't know what kind of Roman garb. I don't know what kind of um, like robes, where, where all that comes from, what cultures those come from. It's probably a mixture of things. But everybody was white. And what that does to a person to, to be able to identify in that way with God and with the stories of of these figures that we venerate, it makes you begin to think that the world is supposed to be ordered according to your culture. And that is such a violent way to exist in the world. In a in a tradition, and I know I'm not really sharing much about my 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 former context. I'm just like feeling all of this right now in this moment is in a tradition where we lift up Jesus as nonviolent and you know we read these texts there's neither greek nor hebrew male or female yeah slave or free which is you know has depths of context and meaning it seems like white evangelical christianity is just such a a violent stance in the world Mm-hmm. And people perhaps are becoming awakened to that just a little bit. But because each of us 
doesn't can't claim. Well, I'm speaking for myself because it's been so hard to claim whiteness. My own skin is being white and my identity is being white. Then whenever that gets pointed out, I begin to feel really uncomfortable and I start to sweat a little bit. And the whole world is sort of not the whole world, but my world is sort of programmed to keep white bodies from feeling uncomfortable. And so then things get shifted and we talk about well-meaning people. We talk about, you know, getting sort of entrapped in something that isn't our fault. And I'm not really a racist. It's just, you know, we get we sort of get into those modes of thinking and never let ourselves feel really uncomfortable and experiencing what discomfort feels like. I'm still stuck at the like overwhelming evidence part. I feel like there's a lot of people who won't listen until there's an overwhelming, preponderous evidence that is just undeniable for them to stop and look and be like, okay, yeah, whiteness is a bad thing. Okay, yes, this is a real thing. Like that's – so I, I don't know. I know we're talking about personal stuff, but I have so much energy toward like talking about the fact that white was a lo- legal category in our country. Like we created that. We said whiteness was a legal category and it had legal ramifications. So whiteness is a thing. Like it's, uh, I, and uh, we went on a missions trip, a mission trip, an immersion trip, Casey, Bonnie, and I, and visited like this, uh, this space where they talked about indigenous folks being renamed, like being schooled under uh, Christian education in California taking people out of their languages and their cultures, erasing that kind of stuff, like teaching people English and changing their names, changing the names of their streets, their towns. That's a violent act. And that's, and and you're right, Bonnie. And um, I don't know if it was Rajiv who talked about the violence of it, but it's a violent act to rename people like that. And that's something that we like, we, we enshrined in baptism. You'd baptize someone and give them a new name. That's more fitting to the the dominant culture. And as far as schooling goes, I mean, the when the integration stuff kicked in in the 50s and 60s, that's when private schools took off. There was more enrollment in private schools in the 50s and 60s because of forced integration than at any other point in American history. Throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it only slowly changed because people had to go through lawsuits. They didn't change because the law changed. They changed because they were sued at different points to actually open up and integrate their schools to the point where Bob Jones, a huge evangelical Bible college, didn't actually have forced integration until the 80s, the middle of the 80s. And then they changed their policies on interracial dating in the year 2000. So if you want to talk about like an overwhelming evidence of white supremacy throughout the history of the church, we could do that. But a lot of people, when they hear so, like the stuff about the invisibility of whiteness and stuff, they just completely discount it. You know, you almost have to see a thousand videos of people being devalued before you'll even accept that the systemic question is real. And that's, maybe that's where I'm getting a little angry and a little bit upset about it, but. Well, I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated. You know, Jeff talks about uh, growing up Pentecostal, you know, for those who, who, who believe in a spirit realm, you know, like you should be the first ones to be able to name this shit, right? <laughs> like you should be like, if you are the ones who, who experience the darkness and who can cast it out in the name of Jesus, um, I am quite surprised, uh, that you, that, 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 that Pentecostal folks aren't picking up on this demonic spirit, right? 
Oh, they were when it was overt and when it was someone else, but never ourselves. Like I heard several times casting out the the demon of racism. Like it was racism That's was right. always That's apparent, right. I think because of our connection to a lot of black churches, but it was, it was, yeah, it was a thing of the past. It was the enemy. It couldn't be us. Yeah. I'm curious going back to kind of what Alan was saying. And really I'm curious Rajiv and Bonnie in particular, uh, Alan speaking of schools and education. And I know that was from our conversations, that was a central tenet of Seventh-day Adventism. How did you see those uh, race issues play out in kind of that tradition and especially in the education part? It, it, it's, it's such an interesting mixed bag because the Seventh-day Adventist Church historically were abolitionists. Um, Ellen White, the founder of the church, she she had sent her son. He was like on fire for abolition. He went into the deep south. I mean, there there are historical documents showing the Adventist connection to the Underground Railroad. So there was a lot of that kind of work. And Ellen, she wrote a book on education and the Adventist education system came out of that, which is, you know, there were some really interesting and valuable thoughts in that book, but it was part of a larger movement in America. And the school I went to, I went through Adventist school K through undergrad. The high school that I went to is in the Washington, D.C. area is one of the most diverse schools in the whole state. Seventh-day Adventist schools historically were built to be integrated schools as a way to combat that. But it's, you know, it's in this private parochial space, which is also problematic in it in its own way. But so it, it was a mixed bag, and it's not like it was void of racism. Uh, you know, there were schools that had to be set up to be black schools because the mixed schools weren't doing it. And not only not void of racism, but there were de- there were even whole conferences that were segregated. Um, there were black conferences and white conferences. Uh, so I think it's impossible in the United States to be Christian and not have your Christianity deeply embedded in white supremacy. I agree. I mean, we are the country of slavery. And it, it, it was preachers. There were preachers and theologies that supported the institution of slavery. We haven't even begun to address that, I don't think, as Christians. The legacy that we live in and the way we perpetuate this legacy because we don't want to admit that we're part of the problem. I just want to, in case there are Seventh-day Adventists listening, the the black conferences in the Seventh-day Adventist church, there's, there's real controversy because folks within the black conferences, that was done out of a movement of black people, by black people, for black people, in order to, to create structures of, for self-governance. And then there was others that are like, if we can't be part of the main group and exercise our voice in the main group, then what's the point? So there, there was some real tension. So it's, it's not entirely uh, a structure that is anti-black. It can be argued that it was very pro-black. Well, my question would be, and I think that, again, I don't, I'm not familiar with Seventh-day Adventists, but I think that that 
problem happens a lot where then the 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 white person turns around says well you want to be anti-racist but you're creating your own thing instead of analyzing well why did they feel the need to do that in the first place and what kind of environment have we created to make a group feel like they need to separate themselves to be safe yeah i mean you just read some malcolm x (laughs) did any of you ever like hear anything about like slaveholder religion yeah that's in That's your context, was, my brain is so slow this morning. <laughs> I'm really struggling. But Bonnie, when you were talking about the theologies that upheld slavery, I was woefully old when I found out. And I, my life has been biblical studies and theology. That's just been what I've been immersed from from the moment from first grade up. And I never heard the stories of slaveholders sending preachers to speak to their slaves from the Bible to tell them to be, you know, good slaves for their masters and quoting different parts of the new Testament. It blew my mind. And I was way too old when I learned that, that the Bible was used to defend slavery. You know, the Southern Baptist convention was created because of wanting to hold on to slavery. That's, that's the reason they were, became into existence in the first place. And Frederick, I think it was Frederick Douglass. Um, I think he was a former slave. He was even wrestling with, you know, do do we disseminate scriptures uh, amongst the slaves? Because they, they weren't allowed to have the Bible, that's for sure. Because there's all these stories of liberation and, you know, justice and exodus and things like that, that were sung and, and you know, like were talked about it as being like a homeopathic cure. Like you could take the Bible, the biblical stories, and there's stories of liberation and there's also stories of oppression. And so it's like, there's a little, there's the poison in it, and there's also a cure in it as well. And so taking that in was was a, a path toward liberation, but it also stung with a little bit of the, the, the oppression that was being used. So yeah, I, I don't remember how old I was, but it was definitely when I was an adult, when I discovered the Bible had been used that way. What about you all? When did you hear that slaveholders preached at slaves in our country or used the Bible to defend slavery? I can't remember not knowing that. Well, then maybe I come from the most white supremacist <laughs> place out of all of us. <laughs> maybe that's why I'm angry <laughs> and over-caffeinated. But just because you have the knowledge doesn't mean anybody's doing anything about it. Totally. You know, I, I watched I watched. there's one video uh, of a woman speaking. She's At the end of it, she says, you know, you're lucky that people just want equality and not vengeance. And I felt that like I, I never had honestly considered that my whole life. Writing the wrongs of oppression in our in, in churches—that's not a conversation that's really be, being had, from what I can tell. I've seen like racism seminars and stuff about how not to mess up and get sent to HR, <laughs> but I haven't seen like a systemic like undoing of of white supremacy in our circles. How was? systemic oppression dealt with of any kind like was it even acknowledged like if sin is the problem because there's a lot of conversations about sin if sin is the problem like what's the what's the cure what's the fix jesus and prayer Breaking and that was it jesus right <laughs> that's right it was hashtag, well, I remember it. hashtag the, the, break up with white jesus yeah the the church that i grew up in prided itself on being one of the first churches to integrate 
but it was a dominantly white church for sure. And it, it tried to bring in speakers with different perspectives from time to time. I remember one time an African-American pastor came in and man, he just let loose on the colonialism of Seventh-day Adventism. And it was great. I mean, it was, it was so interesting because the, what I'm, I'm calling now the persons of culture, we gathered at the front of the church. Like we found each other to talk about, holy crap, we actually heard this here and we want more of this. And then um, like the next week, the next week they got up and did sort of this disclaimer on what was preached the week before. And was like, whoa. And I, I was thinking to my parents, I wasn't quite old enough to like just decide to go somewhere else. And I was thinking, well, maybe my parents will leave and we'll find a place that's more more safe and uplifting this way. But they didn't. They were pretty entrenched. And, you know, I think the desire to be part of whiteness is something that a lot of immigrants contend with. And, I, and my family, not just our nuclear family, but our extended family that emigrated were all very very much caught up in that for for a long time. Rajiv, I you know, not that you have to explain this to me, but I'm really curious about what you said in terms of that desire from immigrants to fit into whiteness. I mean, that's not exactly how you worded it, but I'm really I don't know if you can even explain that. It, it's a it's an experience that I hear people say a lot that I just I'm curious if you would be willing to offer some insight into kind of some of the practical examples of that and just the how that how that plays out internally for you in your spirituality and in just in everyday life? Well, I mean, it's, it's really painfully obvious, you know, listen to me speak, see the way I dress, uh, listen, look at my playlist on Spotify, you know, look at, look at my bookshelves. It's just being imbued with whiteness. And it was something that we were taught uh, by the family growing up is like, you got to master this shit because uh, you don't, you, you want to make sure you can work your way into any opportunity that's, that comes your way. So you want to sound right. You want to dress right. You want to act appropriately, have all the social graces uh, so you can fit in. And it is, it's like not just, just recently, probably about a year ago, I kind of made this decision. You know, I think I'm done wearing, like other than t-shirts, which is like made by poor people, I think I'm done wearing anything that's like white, like anything that's preppy. I'm not going to wear suits and ties anymore, period. Like if my only option to go to a thing is to wear a t-shirt and, and jeans, that's what I'm going to wear. Um, to like, you know, maybe build a wardrobe that's not white in its, its style and, and origin, which is going to take some work, you know, thinking about it. it it's like we're so enmeshed there there's no way around it there's no way to really function without being able to code switch at minimum code switch effectively i know when when rajiva and i first started dating and i was hanging out with um a, you know a, it was a different context front to me rajiva's extended family who most who immigrated from India in the like late sixties, early seventies, and then had kids and so on. Um, people would refer to dating partners as like, Oh, she's American or, you know, cousin so-and-so is dating an American. And that meant white. And I remember, you know, my parents were Canadians and I, and, and so I had never really 
felt American, um, but that's how I was referred. And uh, that's how people, what people called me. And I remember just being really struck by that. American and whiteness go together. Bonnie, you asked us what, um, how the systemic conversation happened, whether it was brought up. I think it was relentlessly individualized. Like we were always told every single topic of sin or this or that was just an individual thing. And it was something you were responsible for on your own, except for things like, you know, they would say abortion or uh, marriage, you know, protecting a marriage or marriage or something like that. And I think it's important for all of us to just name the fact that Christians, white Christians, not all of them, but probably most of them in America lost the cultural war to keep white supremacy enshrined in law. And there's still a lot of a lot of ground that has to be covered as far as law goes, but in the the Civil Rights Act and things like that, that that they were opposing, all that energy shifted toward abortion and marriage where it didn't actually exist before that. So it was like, let's take all this war machine we've built uh, to keep white supreme um, in the terms of law and systemic issues and then just pick a different issue that we can tell ourselves that we're fighting the good fight. But I think for me being a child and of inheriting that kind of switch, you know, racism was never a systemic thing. It was just an individual thing. And I still hear that all the time with all the conversations I'm having. Right. I think, I think sin in general is individualized and like you were saying, Alan, right. And so the cure for that is just, is a personal relationship. The cure for that is Jesus, unless it's this other but, topic, and then it's judges, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but what about Jesus? Like Jesus's Jesus's call to go and free the oppressors—that Jesus. I mean, what what about Jesus is the cure for sin? In the former if it's context? protesters, then it's you know law and order. If it's uh, claiming that you are a white racist, then it's, well, Jesus was peaceful. <laughs> like it's, it's really, you know, using the different parts of scripture to fit your political narrative. I mean, that's been my experience at least. And, th- and that's important to name that the uh, oppressor of uh, the oppression in our system will use everything it can to continue that stream of oppression, including Christianity. Uh, yeah. And and I think I think we could argue that Christianity isn't just a tool; it's the thing itself, and that's what makes it really challenging. I mean, we're talking about provoking our Christian, our progressive Christian imaginations. So, what needs to be provoked? That's part of the question for today around whiteness and racism and anti-blackness, which is a newish ter- term to me. And I'm so glad that we're beginning to use that because that's really what we're talking about. What needs to be provoked? What needs to be provoked is uh, the deep grief, you know, that Juanita was talking about in the last episode. The deep grief um, that white people refuse to tap into, the the anger that lives there, the outrage that lives there, um, that we classify as shame or rage or guilt, right? Instead of confronting what the deep grief that, that is underlying that. 
um, and how and the invitation, Bonnie, that you that you are asking us to do is reimagine church, reimagine Christianity. And I think the way that we we have to start that process is by first acknowledging that it exists, <laughs> um, that Jesus is not white. You know, I love Rajiv's invitation for us to break up with white Jesus, and to and to again acknowledge that um, a lot of who has talked or who has claimed. Uh, the lion's share of information about Christianity have been European white men, and we have to break up with them also. Jeff, in a few episodes ago, was talking about how the Great Awakening happened for him when he looked at his his library at home and realized that the only people sitting on a shelf were people who looked and acted just like him. Uh, so I think that it starts with uh, the recognition that whiteness has steeped itself in Christianity. And in some ways, they are going to be hard to be pulled apart. And we have to acknowledge that. You know, I, in, in the reading I've been doing lately, they talk about truth and reality and holding them in your hands. In your left hand, you're holding reality. In your right hand, you're holding truth. And how even race, even concepts like race itself, like the 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 sorting system of oppression is not intelligent it's absurd it doesn't make sense on one level like so in your in your right hand holding truth the truth is like race is a construct we're all on this huge spectrum there's 7.5 billion ways of being a human being and there's you know so that's that that's true so race is not a true thing but it's a real thing and in your left hand you're dealing with the reality of people's experiences of society and so some people you know on the on the on the right hand side want to be like yeah let's create a world where we recognize race is just this unintelligent absurd kind of thing that separates all of us and so we want to hold on to that and it's comfortable i think for a lot of people like myself and then on the left hand side it's like this reality that like no this is a real thing that limits people's lives and benefits other people and you know grappling with that can also be disheartening for some folks and so they said holding both at the same time is just really tiring it can be really tiring to hold the truth and the reality together. And I think maybe that's what we need to start doing as spiritual communities is recognizing like the different layers involved in all of this and then teach ourselves about those things. Like, I feel like I, we need to teach our, be taught and teach ourselves to walk, you know, before we run a mile sort of thing. I also worry because uh, did you see that thing on Twitter where a, a person was explaining how, they came close to like white allyship where someone was, you know, they, they, they explained that they were in a progressive situation. And I think that they were talking about like homophobia and how there was homophobia in the system. And then the person cried and was sad that that was the case and angry. And then there was like this snap back, this like reversal and pushback against things. So I, and then, uh, you know, the, the person who, who talked about their experiences was ultimately punished for doing so. I really worry about some of our Christian circles who are just now entering this conversation, like whole churches that have never talked about this before in the history of their institution are now forced to have these conversations because people all in their church and especially young people are bringing it up and making them talk about it. That grief can lead to a snapback and consequences for folks who are in that community. I don't know. I, I just, I have some worries around what the consequences are going to be like for institutions that don't have the staying power to continue having that deep journey. 
I mean, consequences like innocent people getting murdered? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but that's already happening. Right. Yeah, you're right. So that's a consequence yeah. that's been with us forever. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Just like the re-entrenchment thing. How do you avoid that? Well, you know? look at Trump. I mean, what more re-entrenchment right. can you get post exactly. Bar- Barack Obama than <laughs> Trump? So, oh, yeah, God, it could get worse. The real consequences, for sure, of um, people not having, which is something else Quinita <laughs> talked about, not having a process by which to actually move from where we are to a transformed place. And there, there is grief and rage and other emotional experiences that are required to help lead us to that place of actual t- transformation, reconciliation, and healing. And so I guess it, I'm just feeling it's we're woefully unequipped. We're That's woefully what it feels like to me. We're, we're woefully ill-equipped. And mm. our religious tradition, we've we've uh, given it over. That's right. Yep. It's just imbued with it, it. What does it have to offer us to help us in this transformational process? I think that's part of the question when the religion itself, especially in the American context, has been twisted to endorse the sin that nobody's talking about. How, how do we then how can we use it mm-hmm. to help oh, lead us? I see what you're saying. OK, that's so interesting. Well, and being woefully unequipped as Christians is in our DNA. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it is. But I mean, going back to even Jesus, we as humans were woefully unequipped to handle the teachings. So woefully unequipped. We killed him for nothing. That's right. We couldn't handle it. You know? So it's it's like this is this is part of our painful process of, of evolution. We need to stop killing people for no reason. Uh, that's finally a reality. Thank God that 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 light finally switched on. But yeah, we're we're always woefully ill-equipped for the next thing. That doesn't mean we don't do it. Right. And we're way behind, too. I mean, look at the history of the Christian church. It it had to evolve with an influx of new people. Right. The beginning of Christianity was primarily Jewish in its religious structure, but as it got influxed with people who were non-Jewish, it had to change. It just had to. It the whole thing fell apart. Same thing happened when you had the the split from Catholicism to um, Protestantism. It had to either if the function if the function of that organization continued, it would have to segregate a whole group of people. So it was either die or change or segregate and i feel like maybe the problem is that we are we're not i don't want to say this is something i'm processing so forgive me if something's wrong that i say just you know pounce on it because i'm this is something that i'm really working through in my head right now is the idea of space is that a lot of the people that are calling for nuance in this conversation are call are saying that because they got called a racist on facebook or twitter well Honestly, if you're looking for nuance and if you're looking for education and you're going to Facebook and Twitter, that's your problem. It's like going to Sesame Street to try to study for your doctorate. Like that's not the place for it. It's where are your relationships? Where are you having those real conversations? And I feel like if the church realized that, you know, is it, I think in, in connection with our churches, why are we going to church? 
And if we're not going to church for race relations or learning how to be anti-racist or learning how to see all this stuff, then we then we abandon it and we move to a place that will do it. And eventually the church will die or figure it out and have to, to, to work it out. And I feel like we're not analyzing the spaces that we're going. We're going down the wrong pathways to get that information and then throwing away the whole system because it wasn't there. Well, I'm not going to, you know, again, to, to use an overtired reality, you know, if I'm looking for a flat screen TV and I'm going to the supermarket, oh, it's impossible. I can't find one. You know, it's, well, it's not there. And the church needs to analyze what is, is this really there? Like we're saying all this stuff, we're talking about race and we're talking about reconciliation and salvation and all the things connected with Jesus, but are we really offering that? And if we're not, then, you know, rebrand, <laughs> you know, figure it out because, you're going to the wrong places. The only thing I want to pounce on there, Jeff, is is don't bash Sesame Street, man. The <laughs> the, the answers are in Sesame Street. Been doing, it's been slain lately, apparently. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Right. It's an, as a starting point, just like I think that hearing conversations on social media is a starting point. But if you're trying to stay there to get your answers, then you're going to do yourself a wild disservice because you're – First of all, you're going to allow yourself to se- easily separate because your comfort is primarily – and I'm speaking – when I say you, I'm saying everyone who's listening who's white like me, like your comfort will be challenged. And if that's uncomfortable for you but you still want to learn, then go to another place. And and that's fine. I mean you you don't have to be called out. But recognize that when you are called out, because you probably will in some space or whatever, that that is not the only place to learn. It's not your only source. And – that to say that our our public conversation, I think, does not allow for nuance, and it is hard, and you can give up easily. But again, there's other spaces that are available. That social media, uh, news rhetoric, the public sphere in terms of a national conversation is not always the best place to go to start that conversation. Go to smaller communities. Like it's why we all are in the work that we're doing. It's why we're doing things like intersections to pr- to provide. Sp- Safe, small spaces where people can kind of, you know, say things that may be <laughs> a little questionable because those are part of the process. But you you don't do that in certain spaces because you have to recognize that there's other people who are real victims of these things that we're talking about. There are people that are in these spaces that are, that are experiencing this on a real day. So, of course, they're going to be upset. Of course, they're going to jump on you. And I don't know. I I, I those are things that I'm working through. It's so, the rant over, conversation sorry. that I'm having right now about like what church is for. And I think church is at its best when it allows people to take their masks off and really discover who they are and what's involved in making them who they are. Church is maybe not a good analogy. Okay, right yeah, now. Well, I just meant like your internal mask. Don't like take your James mask Baldwin off at church, sense, everyone. <laughs> not in the coronavirus <laughs> sense. And church is at its worst. I, I think he's talking about the clan sense. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, okay. I wasn't, but that's a good one too. <laughs> church, is, church is at its worst when it's just creating a consumer oriented culture that is sold to everybody and everybody's forced to ingest it and become it. So maybe church is meant to be small and weird. And like people are just learning to take their masks off and just be who they are. Like, and, and, and letting like fostering an environment where that can happen for people of all different kinds. But that's a radically different understanding of Christianity than the one that I think operates in our culture at the moment. Well, are we equating Christianity with church? 
Yeah, okay, that's true. I mean, <laughs> that's Bonnie, really if you want to kill we Christianity right to, now, go ahead. <laughs> well, we went straight to the containers that we are we are comfortable yeah. with and that we know about. Christianity is way bigger than that. So I'm asking about Christianity in general. You know, Christianity, well, even American Christianity. Because there are Christianities and and I think it's really important for us. That's that's one of the one of the problems of whiteness is that we keep sort of thinking all means white and it doesn't. There are so many Christianities across the world. And in the United States, um, Christianities formed alongside the slave slaveholder religion. That's where we, you know, in, or in the Americas anyway, that's where we get liberation theology, which is, you know, a powerful not slaveholder religion or white religion white christianity there is no reconciliation for that because there is no starting point of healing for that kind of christianity in america because it began as a slaveholder religion you know so reconciliation is when you go back to something that is that has been healthy has been broken and gets put back together and if one of the main expressions of christianity in america started out with excluding people there is not reconciliation. There might be repentance, but you're not reconciling to something that was healthy and whole at the beginning. I think I'm hearing what Bonnie's saying a little bit more now. I don't mean to be a peddler of sequel conversations. However, perhaps a follow-up to this would be, uh, <laughs> you know, white supremacy in progressive Christianity, because I feel like at this point, evangelicalism is kind of an easy target. And I know that... I know, you know, four out of the five of us here have things heavily invested in uh, progressive Christianity being ministers yourselves. And I think that perhaps this is a that would be a good follow up conversation. That sounds great. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to talk about myself. Just <laughs> the past. Just other people. <laughs> <laughs> OK, fine. Oh, yeah, I can't wait for that conversation. Well, I mean, do we have any any final thoughts? I think that we're. My final thought is uh, sort of in line with what Bonnie's talking about. I'm looking for the Jesus who continues to call us to, if we have to, walk away from our friends and family. The one who says, if if what if they cannot hear you, then honey, bye. Like, move on. Because I think the the biggest problem with our culture in general in the United States and Christianity is that we are we believe that we are above reproach. We do not think that we that we are fallible in some ways. And the moment that we feel discomfort, we either shut it off or we cry, hoping that it will stop whatever, whatever. You know, it's like the feeling is walk away or cry, and then maybe we don't have to talk about the uncomfortable things. Um, but Jesus was constantly, constantly calling us into those uncomfortable places and reminding us that this following of him might require our whole lives, everything. And that is something um, that if we're going to talk about faith, if we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian, not uh, an institutional, uh, whatever, religious person, but a Christian, it will require your body on the line. And I think that um, that's what the work of being an anti-racist is inviting us into, putting everything on the line, our relationships, our time, uh, letting go of information that we thought was real that really wasn't, and our bodies. It requires all of us to do this work and to confront this demon. I, I think um, examining 
the idolatrous parts of our lives, use a, a triggering word. Um, but just ask yourself, you know, what are the things that you idolize that are enshrined and seem permanent? You know, really flip those things over. Uh, and also, I'm saying this a lot lately, is take care of yourselves. There's a lot happening in the world. It's long past due. If you feel like you're late to the game, you're here. But take care of yourself. Your your spirit, your wellness is really important to the movement. It's really important for you to be your fullest self too, because that that's what we're that's what the fight's all about. So it doesn't matter your your skin color, your wealth. We need you to be you, and we need you to let others be who they are too. Like um to to be white, at least in the current context, is to also be racist. And um being able to say that, you know, say that out loud to whoever's listening, I'm I'm a racist and I'm also involved in anti-racism work with as much strength as I can muster, which means that I have to oppose things inside of myself like constantly. It's not just for me, but it's for the next generations that I do this work because I may not get there, <laughs> but I'm hoping that whatever is done today will will bear fruit in next generations. Just want to say ditto to everything Rajiv said in particular. Um, I feel like there's this place that we can access that underlies all of the the like using terminology that might sound weird at first, but like the status play on the outside and reaching in toward something really deep and genuine. That's hope for all of us and really connecting, like realizing that there are portions of us that, that are true and deep and genuine and really getting centered on that allows us to do this work without, without shying away in shame or fear or things like that. And the more we do that for ourselves, the more we can do it for other people. So thank you, Rajiv for, for bringing that front and center. I would just say, you know, wherever you are, like be aware of the space that you are encountering and the the space that you occupy and the spaces that you create and really really ask yourself if you're if those spaces match your ideology and are they really perpetuating the things that you want to see in the world because it has to be more than just your words and uh i think we do that in a lot of variety of different ways and uh and and just one last thing, one thing that struck me, Bonnie, when you were talking is I feel like as evangelicals, we were, we should be better trained for this because we're so used to saying that we're a piece of crap and that, you know, when you say I'm a racist, like we always said, I'm a sinner. We always like, that was a central part of what we were doing. And yet we can't do it with this particular issue. And I think that that's important. I think to acknowledge that we are, we are sinners, you know, let's, <laughs> let's say the sinner's prayer or let's say the racist prayer. Let's change, let's change it around. We're going to change all the words and, you know, God, we come to you. I'm a racist. Forgive me for that. Give me the strength that we need from the spirit. <laughs> Whatever prayer we had at the altar call, let's, let's, let's switch it around. All right. So let us know what you think. Add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 170. That's irenacast.com slash 170. Also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 170. 
And if you'd like to lend your voice specifically to this conversation, this coming Monday on July 13th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard, join us for our Facebook Live, where we will continue the conversation. If you can't make it live, but you'd like to give your input, you can email us at podcast at irenicast.com. That's podcast at irenicast.com. On the other side of music, we're going to be playing another round of I Would But... Hello, we are on the other side of the music, and we're going to be playing I Would But, and how this is going to work is we say something that we genuinely would want to do, but something's holding us back, and our other co-hosts will offer what could possibly be holding us back. And the last time we did this, I was super mean to everyone, and everyone was super nice to me, and I'm still holding a lot of guilt for that, which I guess is appropriate when we're talking about whiteness. And... Oh <laughs> Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's do this. So we're all going to say something and, uh, who, who wants to go first for this I'll one? I'll go first. All right. So I would go to space, but. You're already there. <laughs> <laughs> I've seriously thought it would be so fun to do that. I've always wanted to be an astronaut. But space force. Cannot get you there yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go along those same lines, but however, space is also, also militarized now. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, but, uh, you know, there sound doesn't carry in space and we need your voice here. <laughs> I'm kudo, Alan's. Kudos, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So maybe I'll go anyway. <laughs> Just buy a ticket. <laughs> okay, I would get a tattoo, but because <laughs> I've never gotten never a, tattoo? Got a tattoo. I thought no. you did it by this point. I'll just yeah, I'll talk up to and serious point. plans. But I got I, I would get a tattoo, but okay, I can't. But you can't figure out what you're gonna get a tattoo of. But that that would tip your hipster credentials over, over the yeah. top, and you would then lose your hipster credibility. But it's more fun to talk about than actually do. Wow. <laughs> Damn. But you're trying to figure out how to do it without culturally appropriating anything. Very nice. Actually, yeah, I, I am getting tattoos uh, that are culturally appropriate. Dug into my own. I'm gonna get a. I'm gonna get a labyrinth. Uh, a labyrinth from France on my chest, and then eventually a peacock and a lion from the Book of Kells, um, where the peacock is grabbing the mouth of the lion to like the symbol of of life and of uh, everlasting life, snatching life out of the jaws of power. I think that's something that's really beautiful. I want to have eventually. That is so, cool. Keep but keep talking really, about it. It hasn't yeah. happened because I'm worried that there's some really big consequences to having tattoos that we just haven't discovered yet. You know, like you can't just shoot a bunch of needles into your body and then like nothing happen, no consequences oh follow gosh. up later on in life. You know what I mean? Alan, I feel like if you were just a couple years older, you would already have a not of this world tattoo surrounded by tribal design. Oh, <laughs> by surrounded like tribal, by uh, like a tribal tattoo. 
Oh, don't you do totally that to would. Me. Just a couple oh years older, God. you would have it already. And you would be figuring out how you needed it. Or like peace in some other language that I don't speak and have never read in my life. Right. That yeah, really probably. says asshole. <laughs> hey, at least you'd fit in better at the gym. We're probably triggering <laughs> listeners right now. <laughs> We're not thinking about you. We don't. <laughs> We've never seen your tattoo. Tina Fey's like, oh, yeah, my friend, she just got a tattoo. It's it's the Chinese character for Celtic symbol. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good stuff. I would be on Queer Eye, but... You'd break the internet. <laughs> but but what would they change? <laughs> You're already on point. I love you. But they don't have a show if the people that they're trying to help helps the hosts oh. instead. <laughs> Amen. I, I think, yeah, that's just something you should do. <laughs> I can't think of a... Yeah. <laughs> I'll call them for you. Make it happen, Bonnie. Make okay. it happen. I feel like Karamo and I would be. <laughs> we'll send them one of your Thursday reflections. There you go. If you're listening, yeah. everybody contact Queer Eye and tell them that Casey should be on it. There you go. That's hilarious. All of our listeners, let's mobilize. Let's mobilize. <laughs> we can do for it. For the cause. I I would be a stand-up comedian, but... But you prefer to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh my god damn. oh man <laughs> oh my gosh that's great I, I was but dad jokes are not in Ooh. i was gonna say but drunk bar patrons are too easy of targets <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I'm going back and forth on. <laughs> <laughs> what I say Bonnie, you got him good. That was that's that was up. really. I know, and nobody I, can hear you laughing. Laugh in the microphone so people know you're laughing. <laughs> Who me? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I could just watch Bonnie and Rajiv go like do that to each other like for a whole show. <laughs> just talk. To yeah, each I other. I, I could so too. Funny. I could seriously just listen yeah, to them if, if we just recorded ourselves walking around the house all day. <laughs> During these quarantines, be a, a stand-up duo, both of you combine the act. <laughs> right there, you go. That's my answer. But the act wouldn't be as good without Bonnie. Yeah, I remember Bonnie. There was one time that it was you and I and Rajiv, and you guys were like hitting each other hard, like joking around. And <laughs> yeah, and Rajiv left the table. I said, "Are you okay?" And Bonnie was like, "Yeah, this is our life together." I was like, <laughs> "Yes, this is awesome." Yeah. <laughs> Our poor kids. <laughs> Did everybody go? No, Jeff didn't Jeff. go. I was just going to say, then the the act wouldn't be good if Bonnie wasn't a part Aww. of it. Because she's the butt of all my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little sampling of what Casey's talking about. We'll just let you two talk for a little bit. We'll, we'll listen. In. It's like nobody left. Everyone like got afraid. Like, like I just insulted the Pope to his face. That's right. Yeah, seriously. Like three years ago, I want to say three years ago, we were sitting at uh, it was an ink or whatever or art like place in Sacramento, and you guys were talking. And I was like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> like it was funny. It was, a, yeah. it was. I tried not to just have my jaw like down. It was so funny watching you both go at each other. It's hilarious. That's what love looks like, honey. For an eight, I think so. Probably, <laughs> yeah, it is. It totally is. And what I love about Bonnie is she holds her own. Like she's not backing exactly. down for one second. 
You're right. That's exactly what it felt like. When Regine said something, I was like, you just insulted the Pope to their face. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> like, body's completely unfazed. <laughs> she, like, gave it back way more. <laughs> and Bonnie's like, come for me. Yeah, she's like, I am unfazed. What you don't realize is it's only safe for me to do that in public. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is ending in a few minutes. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, by the way, was um, Loving Day. Oh yeah, commemorating mm-hmm. the the Supreme Court decision to um, make interracial marriage illegal, I guess, across the entire United States. Nineteen sixty seven, I think, is when that happened. The state of Virginia, which is where Rajiv and I first lived when after we got married. And so, yeah. Well, and we were told the county we lived in at the time that they hadn't ratified that law so that our marriage was still illegal or was illegal in that county. But we don't, we didn't get married anyway, not legally. We were just like, whatever. Yeah. Wow. Yep. See, I need to hear stuff like this because everyone's like, racism's a thing of the past, you know, and it's like institutionalized in law still. Yeah, we, we had a wedding, but- no no legal marriage. Wow. Yeah, and KKK rallies were what, four or five miles from our house, 1992? Tri-county rallies. Mm-hmm. And they're still not deemed a terroristic organization, by the way, in American law. Well, they're in the White House. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> yep. So pretty hard for it to be deemed a, a terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you guys for sharing all of that. Oh my god! All right, Jeff, we're all hopped up on our anti-racist, right? Now. <laughs> and it and it's your turn. It's your turn, Jeff. And it and it's your turn. <laughs> Yay! Good for me. That's that's great. This is a great place to be. Uh, I would say something, but no. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Okay, so just I'm going to preface this. This is not a genuine desire. In fact, this is the opposite of a genuine desire in my life. But I'm curious to see how everyone will respond to this. So. Okay, you're not playing that the out game, there. I don't care. I can change it. <laughs> yeah, you can do it. Rajiv changes it all the time. That's true. And then, yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump on that plane or whatever. Uh, okay, I would join the military, but bone spurs are fixable. <laughs> I don't know if I get that. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. <laughs> you're not very good at following the rules that's true but you can't handle yeah bad authority that's what i thought yeah you don't you don't do well with i thought you were gonna come at with me but you can't <laughs> handle the truth <laughs> <laughs> It's like my bone spur comment. I was going to say, but you're too committed to your nonviolent whiteness that it's upset any sort of conflict. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Man, one of these days, I'm going to I'm gonna like set the table for just a barrage of meanness with one of these answers. I'm going to think about it. And the next time we do this segment, I'm going to – maybe I just have some – maybe I need to incorporate some punishment more like desires in my life or something. Or something. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Yeah, we're just revealing too much myself here. Let's 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 end this here. Um, I've said too much. That'll do it for us this week. If you enjoy Irenacast and you would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. 
We're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. Irenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your don <laughs> so your donuts. So your donations are tax deductible. You can also support the show by simply making sure that you've subscribed on whatever platform you listen on. And if the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. We always love to hear from you. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. It's Casey. And this is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 